When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Three-time NBA champion with your Chicago Bulls. Still a very popular man around town whenever he shows his face in Chicago, which is not enough. B.J. Armstrong, good to talk to you. Oh, man, great. Great to be here. Hope uh, all is well with you and yours, and you guys are staying safe and uh, just trying to you know, get through it day by day. Yeah, it's crazy, right? How are you keeping yourself fit in these coronavirus and more importantly healthy during this time man it's it's, it's a challenge for all of us yeah, it's, yeah i think you said it right it's a, it's a challenge and you know your your creativity as far as trying to really organize your day with your family your kids and trying to get some sense of normalcy uh, as far as what our routines are so forth and so on but you know what we're like everyone else uh we're just you know we're dealing with it and uh doing the best we can and really being as responsible as we can by just being self-contained and, uh, you know, trying to get as much information to, to see what we can do to help, uh, to help our neighbor and uh, just keep it moving. So I want to ask you about the uh, Bulls' new hire here, but before we get there, a little bit of props to your guy D. Rose, who had a great year. I, <laughs> I, I loved watching it. it was, he's, he's now my all-time favorite Detroit Piston, which was that – oh, no, that, That's great. You know, he's uh, – you know he's he, he's a, he's a, he's a fighter and uh, he just continues to figure it out and uh, you know reinvent himself and, and and really just continue to play and and he's playing at a at a very high level so I, I think it's been a great fit for him in Detroit and and really kind of settling into uh, you know the player that he is now and this this stage of his career and he's having a lot of fun and I know he's enjoying um playing and now he's in year 12 now i believe and so uh time is flying by you know we we all saw him and the young kid who came into the league some 10 11 years ago and now all of a sudden now he's a he's a veteran and uh so he's but he's doing great and um you know he's continuing to you know just how to how to really play the game at a high level even though um you know he's not the, the 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 young exuberant athletic kid that we saw when he first came in. He's still a very athletic, you know, different player, but he just does it in a different way. So it's a, it's, it's been great to to watch his career progress and figure out how to really just you know you know do what he needs to do out there on the floor. He got cracked around for making comments like I want to be able to play with my kids and it wasn't this like harmful comment that he made. I thought it was ridiculous how much heat he took on it. And then it sort of seems like it's coming into clear view. He just wanted to be able to play a hoop as long as possible. Cause he loves it so much. I mean, that's what I'm getting from everything I hear from well, now, when, you know, yeah, when you, when you, when you love something, right. You know, make, make no doubt about it. He, he loves to play. Uh, he loves to compete and uh, he's going to play as long as he possibly can. But, um, you know, the thing that you have to love and admire about a young man like that is, you know, he, he's he's comfortable with himself, first of all. And he also understands that, you know, we all have responsibilities. You know, we, it's, you know, we all have to get outside of ourselves at some point, right? <laughs> so, I, I mean, we all have families. Um, and when you grow up around family and love and unconditional love and you have you know people that really you can look at and you trust those people because those people have your best interests at heart um it kind of gives you a different perspective and he certainly has a strong family foundation first and um you know and for any anyone that knows him understands that about him what his family means to him and and the relationships he's built with all of his teammates he respects that that dynamic he understands that dynamic and um you know he has a gift and he wants to continue to you know share that gift right going out there and playing and and meeting people inspiring people and he carries that responsibility with him so you know what that comes with the territory we he gets it um you know being in the spotlight 
myself for some time there in Chicago. You get it. You get what comes with that. And uh, he's accepted that and moved on and will continue to play and, and play as long as he possibly can. Last one on Derek. Would you think you would prefer to be in a situation where he's in now, where he's going to have the ball in his hands more and play more minutes? Or do you think at some point he'd want to be like a 10 to 15 minute a guy off the bench for a, you know, a championship contender. See, in my mind, like if it was me, I'd rather play. I'd rather be on a 32 win team and who's fighting to get in the playoffs and, and getting a lot of responsibility on my shoulders than just to be a small contributor, even at the end of my career. If I, and if I can miraculously put myself in, in that mindset, which I'm trying to do. Yeah. You, you know, when, when you play, you, you know, I was just, uh, I had, uh, on a, I do a podcast called pushing through podcast. Yeah. And they just had, um, uh, Rudy Tomjanovich, who was just inducted into the Hall of Fame, he was one of our guests. And, you know, he said the, one of the most interesting things that, you know, that I've heard over my 30 years of being in the NBA is, is two things that's really stuck out with me as far as the relationship with the player or coach, right? And one of the things I heard from the late Chuck Daly, and um, I got traded to the Orlando Magic, and he was the first coach who came up to me and said, do I have permission to tell you the truth? And it just, like, really struck me. Like, I was like, oh, wow, like, here's a coach. And he's asking me a question, right? He sees me. And then Rudy Tomjanovich said something the other day. I was asking him, how did he get into coaching? And he says, I got into coaching because I wanted to make sure that every young man that I came in contact with, that I was able to give him the confidence to believe in himself. And I just thought that was very profound. And – you know, and as you were asking that question, I thought, you know what? I think the, the, the greatest thing that you could do in any situation is, yeah, we would all love to win. Make no doubt about it. Whether you play 10 minutes or you play 30 minutes, you just want to contribute and you understand your responsibility. But I think the big thing is to play with teammates and a coach and an organization who actually believes in you. And then you'll figure out the rest, right? <laughs> We'd all love to be the star, and I think that's what makes – you know, our heroes, because they are the central figure, right? The Michael Jordan characters, they're the central figure of the of the act. But when you understand when you're part of a championship caliber team, everyone has a role to play, right? And everyone roles is just as valuable to make the star the star. But you know what? You need a Scottie Pippen. You need a, uh, a Dennis Rodman. You need a Horace Grant, Bill Cartwright. Everyone has a part to play in this game. So I think at some point, you just want to be around the people that understand the, the true concept of the team, and you'll go from there. So I love all of that. And one thing that I think people, I'll speak about myself, that you learn later in life is when you lift up people around you, you get lifted up too. And Yeah, yeah. yeah you know? For sure, for sure. And that's, that's the greatest thing. And, it, and, you know, that's the greatest thing ever that you can have is, you know, when you, you think, you know, we we're talking about Derek, you know, the, the greatest thing for him was, you know, what for so long, you know, he played this game a certain way. And then suddenly when he fell down, the city lifted him back up and, you know, his family and the people that love him and the game and his peers, and he was able to see the game from a different perspective. And then he's back playing now at such a high level. So, you know, it, it's, it's, you know, life is, you know, ups and downs. And we all have go through our trials and tribulations. But the great thing is that you keep pushing and you keep going and you keep doing it. And uh, you never know who, who's looking. You never know who you're inspiring or you can be inspired by. So that's the great part. So you just, you know, you just keep, you know, you keep, the, you know, fighting the good fight and you keep it moving. I want to jump back in time for a second because you just got me all inspired about people lifting everybody up. One of my favorite moments in watching you play and watching the Bulls play was the 93 season, and Michael and Scotty are coming up the dream team. You guys are going for a three-peat. The team's a little bit tired. You're stepping into the starting lineup, and you're down 2-0 to the Knicks in the Eastern Conference Finals. And Starks has the dunk in game two, by the way. That poster or that whole thing is still up in Madison Square Garden. Every time I walk by it, I'm like, who won that series? But, you know, it's, it, <laughs> it, 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 it's hanging there. And so you guys win three, game three and four at home. Now you got to go on the road to New York. And late in the game, Michael finds you for a three in the corner. 
And I remember distinctly you pointing at him and saying, way to find me. And then Charles had his four shots at the rim. And I think Michael stripped him. Horace blocked him. I mean, everybody was in on it. And Horace finally gets the gets uh, an outlet pass to Michael, who fires that head to you, and you do a reverse layup at the end around Anthony Mason, who you ended up playing with, by the way, with the Hornets, just to throw that in there. Right. And everyone's jumping up and down. Michael's going crazy. Your hands are up in the air. I mean, that was a total team, on-the-road, dogfight moment. And once you won that game, I was like, that's it. That's another championship right there. I mean, that it really was the championship that night. Yeah, well, you know, that was the, – the, the Knicks were uh... – if I recall, I think the Knicks had a better regular season record that year, and um, yeah, they had home court. They were, they, yeah, they had home court. They were a very confident team, um, and they really felt that they had a, a in a good team. And you know, to their credit, they did have a good team, right? They have a, a very competitive group. They were very well coached. They had a great player in Patrick Ewing. They had great role players in Oakley and Stark, so forth and so on. Anthony Mason. And uh, it was a hard-fought match. Um, but we were a confident group as well. And uh, we knew we were going to have an opportunity at some point in that series to win a game. And that's all we had to – whether it came in game one, two, you know, five or seven, we knew we were going to have a chance to win at some point. And, um, and game five presented itself. So we were prepared for the moment. And, of course, you know, we had great – leadership from our, our, our two best players and uh, fuel and the staff had us ready to play. And we were very fortunate. As you can see games come down to really one possession, a loose ball here, a loose ball there. So we were very fortunate to win that game, but to the credit of everyone in that locker room and the team and the coaches and so forth, uh, we were prepared for that. And that's how we were looking at the series. It was just going to come down to a possession here or there, and um, we were fortunate to be able to go back and, and close that series out. But that was a that was a great time and uh, very competitive, and, uh, you know, that was a great era in basketball. Yeah, it really was. I'm looking back at it here. The Knicks were 60-22. and 22. Y'all finished 57-25. and 25. And the Suns, who, of course, you played in the finals, they won 62 that year. And Charles' first year in Phoenix, he was having an unbelievable season. Yep. I remember one of the locker room scenes there, BJ, were – I think you were sitting, I don't know, in one of the corners in Phoenix, and Phil comes over and he picks you up and he gives you a big hug. Correct me if I'm wrong here. You and Phil had your kind of ups and downs as you were finding your way in the league and what your role on the team was and you wanted to maybe do more and establish yourself and you had to fit into the whole structure. And there's something that hit you at that moment. I don't know if you're remembering this the way I am, but that's what it seemed like from a, from a fan standpoint. Well, you know, when you win and you go through so many things, there's a lot of mixed emotions. Like, um, I know I enjoyed every second that I played there in Chicago because I, I, you know, I was living out a dream, right? My dream was to play in the NBA, right? It didn't matter who I played for or, or how I got there. I just wanted to have an opportunity as a young kid to play. And then suddenly I get this opportunity and I'm playing in a wonderful city. I'm playing and unbeknown to anything I could have ever imagined as a kid, I'm playing for a world championship. So I was well beyond anything I ever imagined playing in the NBA. And, um, you know, it was really different time. You know, you, you win one and you're like, what is going on here? You win another. And suddenly here we are again. And uh, I just remember the emotion, like it just, it it comes, right? You don't know when it's going to come or how it's going to come. I just remember at that moment when we had won because it was such a, a, a big task. We had like this amazing three, four-year run of just playing the game at such a high level. And, um, you know, emotionally, you know, you, you play and it looks fun, but you don't really get a chance to really enjoy it while you're in it. So that was – I remember that was – that time was – we were all exhausted. We were just mentally, physically exhausted at that time. So – that's what I do remember about it, and uh, it was certainly a great run that we had and uh, a great group of guys, and uh, like I said, we we uh, we took advantage of every opportunity. I like that you just brought that up, too, because when you're in it, right, you can't enjoy it. you got to work the next day, work the next day. you got to perform. The lights are going to be huge. The pressure is there. There's no way you can enjoy that with a smile on your face all day long when you've got that much heat on you to, to go out there and do it every night. Well, you, you, well, you, you don't because you never really – see the game from a fan perspective right it's so 
it's so fun for me now to go to the game with my with my kids because I can just like be a fan, right? I can just sit there and pop, eat popcorn and you're watching the game and, you know, you're talking to your kids and I'm not looking at it from a technical standpoint. I'm not looking at it going, okay, where's the matchup? What, what play are they running? What, and, and, and when I played, you know, you have a job to do, right? So, <laughs> you know, you're, you're, you're looking at the game and you're playing a game from a, from a different perspective. So, um, so it's been a lot of fun for me once I retired and, you know, just kind of, you know, I'm not, you know, working for the team or anything is I get a chance to really enjoy the game. So, um, those were great times, um, but the strategy and the preparation for the games, um, those were fun, right? And those were fun because you could actually have a – you could affect the outcome of a game, right, um, with a shot here or a steal there or what have you. So those were fun times. And, um, you know, I had some great coaches and great mentors and great people that allowed me to be able to play the game at that highest level because it takes more than talent, right? There's the – you're just understanding how to play, understanding your position, understanding, you know, your rotations, understanding all of the technical things that go into being a, a pro, let alone a world champion. So I was very fortunate to be around great people and great basketball minds that allowed me to, to understand the game at a very high level. And um, I'm forever grateful for that. That takes me to uh, what I teased about 10 minutes ago, which is the the, the Bulls new hire, our tourist, Carney Sovis, who, uh, is in charge of putting those great people around the organization. How well do you know Arturis, BJ? Yeah, I know Arturis very well. And, um, you know, I've known him from in the business, um, just around here and knowing Denver. And you can see what Denver has done, the Denver Nuggets, and what they've done as far as building a, a very competitive team out there. So I know him very well. And, um, you know, he's been around. He's been in the business. He knows the business, understands it. So, you know, um, the NBA, is it's different. You know, when I say it's different, how you build a team, uh, I don't think there's a one way to do it or a special formula. You, it always comes down to, you know, really the essence of the game, right? You have to have great talent, and uh, you have to identify that talent. And once you get it, you know, more importantly, you have to be able to build a team because the difficulty of building a team now is, you know, everyone has the same um, the same issues that they have to do in dealing with salary caps and trades and injuries, so forth and so on. But I know Arturis, and you know what? He's very capable. Um, like I said, he understands the business. He's been around the business. And uh, I'm sure he's uh, he's welcoming the challenges of, of now coming to the Eastern Conference and uh, figuring out what he can and can't do and, and coming and getting familiar as he can with this roster and what he has to do to move forward. Do you have a sense of what his strengths will be and maybe what he'll have to learn along the way? Can you get that in-depth on him or no? Well, I, I I don't because you know, you know, I, I'm not really you know I don't have an opportunity to to look behind the scenes, peek behind the curtain. But what I do know is that you know what the Western Conference is tough right now. And when you look at the Western Conference, I think for the most part uh, we would all agree that the Western Conference, as far as the elite teams, is probably better. The the better talent right now has shifted to the West, right, with the Clippers and the and the Lakers and, you know, even go to state is hurt right now, but you have, you know, Houston and so forth and so on. So the, I think the better conference, if you would look at from top to bottom would be in the Western conference. So, and you look what they've done there in, in Denver and Denver has put together a very competitive team. Um, they were able to build their team for the most part through the draft. And um, like I said, but you know what, the other teams, they've built their teams through free agency. Some have built their teams through trades. There's really no one way to do it, but what we do know is when we got to when you see a great player, you got to you got to hone in and try to build around that talent. So um, I don't know, but well, like I said, he's been around, so he's very experienced. I'm sure he will identify what he needs to do there and, and kind of go from there. Outside looking in, this gets talked about a ton. The Bulls can't get marquee guys to come here. I don't know how NBA guys look at Chicago right now, but. To me, tremendous fans in this city, as you well know, great basketball town, period. Sure, there's the legacy of Michael, but I don't, I mean, are guys afraid to step into that? I don't, I don't think so. Do you think guys look at that as a place where they'd want to play or, is it, or do the Bulls, I guess, have work to do to sort of present it that, hey, this is a great place to play basketball? Well, I think that's a great question, right? And, you know, being an ex-player and being an executive, a former executive and now, you know, representing 
you know, players now, I get a chance to work with all 30 teams, right? And I'd love to hear, you know, the following. We have the best fans in the world. Every every organization has the best fans in the world, right? right. You let them tell it. Yeah, <laughs> okay. right. uh, you know, I go to all the arenas now and I see – okay, I see how the Cleveland fans are, I see the Detroit, I see the Bulls, so forth and so on. Um, I'm always biased, right, because I, I, I've i seen the best of the best in Chicago, and I think I can say uh, Chicago is right up there. I will put them up there with any fans in the NBA. They are terrific, right? Um, and they, they know their stuff. They're very knowledgeable, right, uh, what they're doing. Now, in saying that, it's also when you have a great player and you have a great, you know, player that we're talking about or whomever, you know, those players, that's a tremendous responsibility to just pick up one place and just leave, right? You don't just, you know, there's a lot of things that go into making that type of decision. So uh, I think that sounds good on paper, but these, you know, in peeking behind the curtain, if you will, right? These, you know, these, you know, these players, they have families, they have a comfort zone with, you know, how they play, who they play with, um, the coach, so forth and so on. So I think it's more than just saying, I love this city. In the end, you have to be comfortable with the people you work with. So building their relationship with the player three, four years and having success, that means something to these people, right? Not the player, just to the people. So, you know, I, I look at the Warriors who've probably had the most success over the last five or six years. I think the best way to do it, if you're going to really give yourself a chance to be a champion, is you got to do it through the draft. Because that allows you to build a relationship with the people. You know, they're great players, but if you don't have a relationship with the people there, you really have no chance. There's no trust, right? That's the, that's the one thing that I've learned. So um, if you're going to do it and do it at a high level and have any type of sustainability moving forward, Doing it through free agency is very difficult because you're probably going to catch that free agent probably not in his prime. You're going to catch him probably at some point where he's a little past his prime or before he enters into his prime um, as a player. As a as a player, right? And yep. but what you can what does give you uh, an advantage is when you draft a Jordan, you're able to cultivate that talent, figure out what that talent needs as far as his strengths, his weaknesses, what he's going to need, what type of coach you're going to need, what type of system, what we, what kind of support he's going to need that we're going to need if we're going to really be a championship caliber team. So I think the draft and Golden State has proven it again that that is the best way to do it. And if you're going to do it and do it for a while, because you never know when that player is going to be at his peak peak you know, it may for a for a point guard, it may be in year three through six in a in a you know a Shaquille O'Neal type of player, a big player. It may be you know year seven through eleven. So it just depends, and you hope that you can have your best player playing at his peak and coming together at all the time. And it's really an educated guess. And I think the best way to do it, if you're going to do it, and and really try to do it at a high level is to do it through the draft, in my opinion. See, and I totally agree, and it's part of the reason why the Bulls, when they got lucky and got the number one pick, number one, they didn't blow it, and they took Derek, and that elevated the right. franchise, and they were there. And in 84, they got lucky that Portland took Sam and Michael fell in their yeah. lap. And people say, well, luck's not a plant. Yeah, well, you got to get lucky in the NBA. You got to get a star. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, you do, I mean, you look at San Antonio. They you take Tim Duncan and you you take a Kobe Bryant, right? The Lakers and sure. you 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 get you, you you have to draft these players and then you have to. I mean, if you're really going to do it, you really have to know your players better than anyone else, and that takes time. That takes effort. You know, you have to put a great team of people around. You're going to throw a lot of ideas. And then you hope that when that player is ready to win, right? Because no one wins until your best player is ready to win, right? <laughs> your best player has to be ready to win. And uh, and when you draft that player, you look at this kid, Giannis. Like Giannis, you know, I, I, you know, it, when I watch him, I go, as good as he is right now, he's not in his prime. In my, you know, humble lens that I'm watching the game. But once he gets in his prime and he's around the players that's going to complement what he really does, which is his versatility, versatility as a player, I think this kid is going to run through the NBA like we haven't seen. He's going to make a serious run whenever that comes because he, 
he hasn't developed yet a consistent jump shot. So as good as he is now, and he's already winning, he's already won an MVP, right? He may win another one this year. Once he develops a consistent jump shot, right? Not even a three, just a consistent jump shot. What are they going to really do with this young man? Because he has all of the intangibles that you want, right? He can defend, he can rebound, he can pass, he can score, he's got toughness, he can put it on the floor. I just think when you have these players of that level of excellence, it really gives you uh, an unfair advantage over the rest of the team because you have this player and you know exactly what it is. You're not just getting them trying to piecemeal this thing together in a, in a year or two because you don't know when it's going to end. So, you know, that's just an example of how I think if you're going to do it, that's the best way to do it. BJ, great to be with you. It was fun. Hey, thank you. I appreciate it. And you guys stay safe and uh, be well. Yeah. Uh, let, let, let's talk after this. Uh, I think there's a documentary coming out here. I believe it's called The Last Dance. So, <laughs> yeah, I, something's coming up. I don't know what you're talking about, <laughs> but I, I heard, we've heard about it <laughs> a little bit. I, I look forward to catching up and seeing, seeing your reaction to what they put together over there. All right, you guys. Take care. All right, BJ. Be good. So the Chicago Bulls making moves. Arturis Carnesovas is in. David Schuster back on the Windy City podcast. Back-to-back weeks, David Schuster. This is big. <laughs> well, first of all, his, you know, there, there's a lot of conjecture on how to pronounce his name. I'm pretty sure it's uh, pronounced Carnesovas. Okay. I apologize to the family. Say it again, Carnesovas? Carnesovas. Even though there's not an H in there, um, you know, the European, I don't know how they do it, but yes, I'm pretty sure it's Kardashian. Yes. So, okay. Let me, let me actually start right there. Cause this, this was something that bothered me this week. You can bang on the Chicago bulls for a lot of things, but saying that they're not an inclusive organization and that Jerry Reinsdorf doesn't hire minorities. First of all, Karnishavas is from Lithuania. That's not exactly your standard hire, one. Then we can go to Bill Cartwright, who was the head coach of the Chicago Bulls. Then we can go to Kenny Williams, who ran the White Sox. Then we can go to Ozzie Guillen. The whole concept of the Bulls don't interview minority candidates. I did not like that one at all. No, it's total nonsense, you know, and it's not even worth wasting our breath on it, to be honest with you. I mean, anybody who knows uh, Jerry Reinsdorf knows that he's big, big in, in being, you know, uh, uh, throwing the net out to everybody, if you will. I mean, he he's so inc- – um, he, he, will, he will reach out to minorities, majorities. It doesn't make a difference to him. He just reaches out to everybody, and he's got a long, long record of hiring minorities in his, in his organization. So, I mean, it's not even worth talking about that subject. Yeah. So what do you know about this guy, Karnishavas David Schuster? What have you and what have your people telling you? Because everyone seems to love it. And I'm like, Hey, has he been a GM? No. Has he been a part of a Nuggets team that rose up from when he got there in 2014 to now? Yes. Maybe it's a great hire, but I have no idea. Well, I mean, he, he's, he's known around the NBA. Listen, I only know him now because I've, I've, read up on him a bunch over the last couple of days and I've even looked at some videotapes so if he walked in the room I'd finally know who he is but yeah I mean obviously before a couple of days ago unless you're um, a real junkie of knowing people in all the front offices around the NBA you wouldn't know who he is or some of the people he's already going to bring in you know um, after he, he officially gets the job but you know he does have a vast experience he played for Lithuania, he played a couple on a couple of the Olympic teams for Lithuania. So, I mean, obviously he's got a little bit of a playing background on top of everything else. He scouted in Europe. He scouted in the NBA. He was an assistant general manager out in Denver. He reported, you know, up the food chain. He's made some moves himself. He's found some players. I mean, Denver's starting center. They got him at 41, and he's one of the best centers in the NBA. And Karnishivas was front and center in finding him, to be honest with you. So it looks like he's got um, an eye for talent. He's also worked in the league office. He's got a lot of experiences. What I'm trying to say here, you know, he's now being handed the keys to the car, the family car here, if you will, and we'll see how he does it. You know, he also comes from an organization that has numerous people in their uh, in their front office and that's really the biggest change that's going forward with the bulls is that instead of just having john paxton and gar foreman and just a few other people who are really behind the scenes who you never knew now all of a sudden the bulls front office is just going to be teeming with people 
starting with Carney Shabazz, and, and they're going to hire a general manager, and they're going to have a couple of assistant general managers, and they'll have, you know, as far as, uh, they already have brought in J.J. Um, Puck, who, uh, Polk, rather, who's going to be one of the assistant general managers, who's going to be basically, you know, uh, handling all the contracts, and he will be the salary cap guru in the front office, and he's got, done a good job already doing that down in New Orleans. They're going to hire... Um, probably, I'm going to guess, a minority uh, general manager. It could be um, Calvin Booth. It could be somebody else. I don't really know, to be honest with you. Um, Nazi Muhammad is being mentioned as coming into the organization in some capacity. Uh, he, he's w- worked in Oklahoma City under uh, Presti in, in Oklahoma City. So I think you might see Nazi Muhammad, who's got a good relationship with the Bulls from his playing days here. And, of course, he comes from Chicago. So, you know, they are going to expand the entire front office and really modernize it with a with an updated scouting department. And yes, Gar Foreman could be in charge of that scouting department. I have no idea. Time will tell. So yeah, Karnishivas is being handed the keys to the Cadillac, if you will, and we'll see how he, you know, how he changes everything going forward. And we'll see about the Gar thing. I'm gonna guess that he's not around, but we'll but who knows. Let, let me ask you this. And I don't want to be negative Nancy here. And I think the Chicago Bulls is a great job. You've got incredible job security. Jerry Krause was here for nearly 20 years. Same thing with John Paxson. He's going to get every chance to be successful. And it's a phenomenal city. I don't have to sell that to you or anybody that's listening to the the Windy City podcast. But I keep on hearing that the Bulls have all these great pieces, that he's coming into this great spot. Can somebody tell me what these great pieces are? I mean, Wendell Carter's okay Zach Levine, I I like him, okay, but like, is he going to be? A, is he a number two on a great team? I don't think so. What's Larry Mark? Like, I don't think he's like he's inheriting this tremendous situation as far as the talent that he has around him. And Kobe White's had a nice year too, but he's got a lot of work at bringing talent in here. Am I missing something? No, but I think well, yeah, you actually are missing something when they say it's a great job. It is a great job. He's not inheriting a great roster. I think you're you're misinterpreting what you know what the compliment of him getting a great job in an organization. And Mark, you got to take a look. The organization's worth three point two billion dollars. I get it. Would you not want it? I mean, that's that's where you honestly start. So he's going to have a lot. And take a look at they're, they're hiring people left and right. He is going to, like I said, being handed the keys to the family Cadillac. To do what he wants to do, he will probably have an unlimited budget. You can already tell by the amount of people he's going to bring into the organization. So, again, no, the roster is not so great. I mean, no one's going to – no fool would say that. But he will probably turn over this roster. I would venture to say it's going to be probably a 50% turnover, just a guess on my part, of what next year's roster, if there is a next year, by the way, as opposed to what it currently is. But again, it's a great job, not a great roster. Yeah. All right, let's just talk about the roster for a second here. If you're him and you've got Zach sitting there who's on a very reasonable deal, Lowry's going to be a free agent down the line here, but it's coming sooner than later. I mean, are you trying to be aggressive coming in right now? I mean, what would you guess he would do? Or do you think, hey, if I can just get one guy to play with these guys and illuminate them, then maybe we do have something. Because that would be the argument for it. Like, if you put a really good player around Zach and Lowry and who could actually bring out their best qualities, then maybe they do have something. Well, I don't think he's going to be able to do anything, honestly, real quickly. Like I said, I think he's going to turn over the roster, but I'm not saying he's going to turn over Zach Levine and and Lowry Markinen and and, – well, certainly, Otto Porter Jr. is not going anywhere. Not with 28 million, you know, <laughs> set to go to his to his bank account next season. But I think in due time, I mean, Otto Porter will only be here for one more year. There's no chance of anybody acquiring him in a deal. Marketing, I don't know. Marketing sort of uh, the big question mark here. You know, I'm sure he will take a look at tapes and whoever his coach is, and, and obviously that's still up for grabs. I I think the the coach will be like the last piece of what Karnishivas does. I don't think Jim Boylan's going to be here. I think a man who's coming in to take over the organization will probably want his own coach because that's pretty key going forward. Um, but I, I think they're going to take a look at, at Markinen before deciding what to do with him. I wouldn't be surprised if Thaddeus Young is not here, Denzel Valentine is not here, you know, some of the other guys further down the roster, Archie Diacono is not here, Shaq Harrison is not here, maybe even Chandler Hutchinson is not here. 
Wendell Carter Jr. I think will be here going forward, but I think they'll look ultimately to find somebody else who can play the center position. So, yeah, I I don't think he's going to be able to do anything right away, Mark, because I think the Bulls are sort of up against it with the salary cap and and the upcoming free agent class is not what it's going to be in two years. If you really want to dream, if you really want to dream big. Here comes Anthony Davis. Oh, yes, let's go for Giannis. Let's do it. Well, I, I I said if you really want to dream, you can look 90 miles north and in two years, not next, uh, not this coming summer, but the following summer, unless something really strange happens, he will be available. And who knows, Mark? You know, that's the kind of player I think you're looking at possibly as a free agent. Possibly. You also have to get lucky in the draft. Who knows what the draft is going to be? Who knows what number they're going to get? Yada, yada, yada. So, again, I think he will turn over this roster to a roster of his of his liking, I just don't know, think it's going to be at the top of the roster, and I don't think it's going to be right away. You just got me really excited on the concept that Giannis Antetokounmpo could one day play for the Bulls. That would be incredible. Of uh, course it would. Yeah, it would It would really. That that would be the, the ultimate game changer right now in the NBA. All right, here, let's talk John Paxson, David Schuster, and I'm not big on legacy. Nobody remembers anybody tomorrow, but – I'll ask the question anyway. Like, what do you, what do you think Pax's legacy is in this city? Like, he's got so much angst coming at him, and I'm like, hang a second. The dude hit a game-winning shot to win a championship. We haven't had that many in this town. They were down two. We hit it from the left wing. It was enormous. He was great in 91. He was a tremendous competitor. He brought the Bulls out of the complete dark ages of Rusty LaRue and company with Ben Gordon and Lou Aldang. And, and then he lucked into Derek, but Hey, he picked Derek. He didn't go and take, uh, you know, Beasley. He got Joe Keem. It's the best era of basketball we've had. Like I look fondly on Pax. I know he wasn't perfect. Should he have put Vinny Del Negro up against a wall? No. Did he have a bad temper? Yes. Did he call up reporters and maybe, you know, when he shouldn't have late at night? Okay, fine. But like overall, I look at Pax favorably. That that's me. I don't, what what do you think his legacy is? Well, as as you remember from last week, I might be too close to the forest to see the trees on this one because I've known Pax for a long time, and I consider him a friend. On top of you know being whatever role he has had in the Bulls organization, I mean let let's face it, you know from his playing days, that's a lot of cachet. You know he did hit that that big shot against Phoenix. He he was part of the three peep the first time around. He did do a good job initially, um, you know, turning the roster over. And like you said, I mean, if Derek didn't go down with the injury, who, who the heck knows what would have happened going forward. I don't know if they would have won a championship or not. He did make some coaching hirings, and I'm not sure he was totally, you know, alone in making those coaching hirings. Some of those were just not good, to be honest with you. Um, again, I might be just too close to the forest to see the trees. I think John Paxson overall, overall has had a pretty successful run now I know people will say you're out of your mind you know uh, the Bulls have been horrible for the last half dozen years and they have been to be perfectly honest with you and a lot of that was intentional to try and get somebody high in in the draft I mean listen the Bulls were not the only team tanking over the last half dozen years there were probably 10 teams each season trying to do the same thing unfortunately he kept getting number seven I mean that's great in Vegas it's not so great in the NBA draft lottery if he would have gotten somebody and we talked about this last week like a Zion Williamson or a John Morant or somebody a couple of years before that instead of the number seven pick that they did who knows where, where the Bulls would be? Who knows if they'd even be hiring Artur's Karnishivas even right now? So overall, I think Pax has done a pretty good job. I know I'm in the minority in saying that, but that's just the way I feel. And just for the record, by the way, I'm not saying that the Bulls should keep John Paxson in his role right now, and I don't think you are either. Right? You'd move on right now. It's time, isn't it? Oh, yeah, it's, it's time. And I think, you know, Pax is probably the first one who said and we've talked about this also, he wanted to go more into the background. He's still going to be involved in the organization. He just is not going to be involved with decision-making as much. He will be consulted. I mean, he'll be like a paid consultant, to be honest with you, an advisory role. You know, he might be going to league meetings, you know, in, in, a, in more of a presidential role, you know, a lot of business decisions. I mean, John, 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 you know, knows where all, all the things are in the organization, and he will be a good tool for Karnishivas going forward, at least for a while. And then who knows, maybe John at some point goes, rides off into the sunset, you know, and plays a lot of golf because I know he likes playing golf. 
But, yeah, he will still be part of the organization in an advisory role, at least for the time being. And your guy, Jim Boylan, who I don't think I've ever seen you dislike covering a coach in this town more. I know it's not personal, right? Jim's a nice guy. Just wrongly cast. Should never have been the head coach of an NBA team, at least from my standpoint. And I like Jim. Yeah, I mean, I happen to like Jim a lot, and I think he's a friendly person. I just don't think it worked, to be honest with you. I know he worked hard. Man works hard. No ifs, ands, or buts about it. But I just don't think it worked overall. I mean, you can start with the record. That's not the be-all, end-all, of course. You know, some of the players didn't buy into a lot of the stuff. Some of the late game, you know, timeouts. I, you know what? He, he could tell me a hundred times. I just won't understand some That's of those. So they just don't make any sense to bizarre. me. But yeah, they were a little on the bizarre side. But you know, he he he's a basketball lifer in the NBA. And you know, if he's set adrift from the Bulls, first of all, he's got two more years left on a contract. So don't don't cry poverty for him. He'll be just fine. And he'll also get another job. You know, he will probably get an assistance job with somebody else. He's got a lot of friends in the NBA as well. But, uh, no, I don't think he will be the Bulls head coach going forward. Anytime anybody comes into the position that Karnishivas is coming in, along with the other people in the front office, they will want to have their man. I'm sure they'll sit down with Jim Boylan in, in, in due time, but I don't think he'll be the Bulls coach going forward, no. So I'm remembering – I think I'm remembering this right – I believe it was John Paxson who was talking at the Birdo Center, not the Birdo Center, good God, the Advocate Center. Uh, Birdo Center's long gone. But uh, so he's talking to the Advocate Center about how they're moving on from Fred Hoiberg and they're, and they're bringing in Jim Boylan. And I don't know if you remember this, but Boylan was listening to Pax, like standing there with the reporters, like lurking over just to see what they were saying. And then he was going to talk to us. It was it was like it was a really awkward start. Like I've never seen a coach like trying to like lean over and try to figure out what's being said, and then the next thing you know, we're talking to him. Do you do you remember that what I'm talking about? Uh, vaguely, I do actually, um, and, and some other things. I mean, there was just a lot of awkwardness across the board, and and and, and Pax, you know, Pax believed. I don't know if it was totally his decision. I think Michael Reinsdorf might have been in on part of this to, you know, to give Jim Boylan uh, the contract that they ended up giving him a three-year deal. Um, I, I, I don't understand, to be honest with you. Like I said, if, if John Paxson can be criticized about one thing, in my opinion, it, it's some of the choices that you know the Bulls were head coaches during his tenure as, as the general manager and executive vice president of basketball operations. I don't really understand why Jim Boylan was handed the keys, you know, to, to the roster, if you will, as, as the head coach, but he was, and he did the best he could. There's no ifs, ands, or buts. He tried. He tried, and, and he did a lot of the things that John Paxson and the organization wanted him to do, which was to sort of bring a rigidness, if you will, um, a regiment, whatever the word is, yeah. but it just didn't work. It just didn't work. And, and, and here's the mark of a coach to me. Are, are, do some players get better? I mean, Kobe White got better because of, I think, mostly of his talent, to be honest with you. But Lowry Markkinen did not get better. You can't really say anything about Wendell Carter Jr. because, unfortunately, injuries have you know, hurt him in 50% of his very short NBA career to this point. You know, and some of the other players, I don't know if they really got better. And, and to me, that's the mark of a coach. Yeah, and you you know bringing up the fact that they wanted a more rigid guy, and then it makes me think back to Tibbs. It's like, well, hold on, you got rid of the rigid guy, then you bring in the nice guy, then you go back to the rigid guy, and you had always happens. Yeah, it always happens. Even more so in baseball, you get the nice guy, you know, he doesn't win. You get the mean guy, he doesn't win. You go back to the nice guy, what have you? That's just the way it is. All right, let's wrap up on this because you just made me think of nice guys and mean guys, and somehow I just thought of baseball and Dusty Baker being a nice guy and. You know, they're, they're concocting this ridiculous, we're going to play in Arizona or maybe Arizona and Florida. And I'm thinking about, like, hey, Dusty Baker is 70 years old. Joe Madden is 66 years old. Steve Ciszek, for your White Sox right now, former Cub reliever, now White Sox reliever, was on a conference call yesterday talking about, I'm not leaving my family for four and a half months. Like, he'd flat out retire before he'd do that. This is not happening, right? I mean, I don't, I don't see no. any. Okay. No, I, don't, I just don't see it happening. And there's just a litany of reasons why I just don't see it happening. Yet, I don't know why they're, they're – they're, I'm sure they've discussed it. It wouldn't leak out to the media if, if they hadn't at least discussed it. But, 
I mean, there's so many knocks against it. All they got to do is get one person sick, and then everybody, you know, the next person gets sick, the next person gets sick. You know, the whole house of cards comes tumbling down. So I don't see it happening anyway. And and here's another thing, and someone brought it up to me. I mean, you've got a bunch of young guys, you know, single guys. You think they're going to quarantine themselves into hotels for three or four months and not go out on the town in some aspect, looking for some entertainment, I don't think that's happening. So, I mean, what are you going to do? You're going to tie these guys to a hotel room? I don't think so. So that's one of many, many, many reasons why I don't see this thing happening at all. You did not. I did not think about the the Derek Jeter gift basket lifestyle that uh, is, is is readily available <laughs> for our twenty five year olds. And by the way, congratulations! You earned it. That's fantastic. You made it to the exclusive country club of playing professional baseball, and making tons of money, and the fact that you're sought after by beautiful women. Congratulations! Um, all right, Shu, always good to have you, man. Appreciate you. Anytime, Mark. Pick it up with my main man. Ethan Blumenthal. Uh, by the way, I apologize you were not on the show last week. We missed you, Ethan Blumenthal. And I missed you, but uh, all, all is well. I'm still alive and well, so uh, we get a chance to, to redeem ourselves this week. How close have you gotten to getting the coronavirus? Um, I think every time. I'm pretty fast. Uh, you've seen me in the tennis court, so I think every time I see it coming, I run the other way, and I've been able to avoid it thus far. Um, do you go to the grocery store? Very, very infrequently. What's the so, <laughs> I feel so like I'm doing decently well. Yeah. I, I feel like you've taken at least one huge risk that you shouldn't have taken. Am I wrong? Well so well there's a there's a there's a tennis there's a tennis situation, Carm. So on Tuesday it was really nice and I was in Chicago um with my brother. And all the tennis courts in Chicago, as you might know, they're zip-tied. They're closed off. So we even went to these courts behind the Museum of Science and Industry, which nobody knows about. It's the crappiest courts. They actually have lights. And they were even closed. So we did the unthinkable and drove to Whiting, Indiana, which was about 20 minutes from where we were in Hyde Park in Chicago, uh, so that we could go play tennis on a nice day. So that's how desperate we were to go play. Now, I don't think that was really dangerous, but it was just kind of a bold move in desperation to drive into another state just so we could hit some tennis balls. So you put Indiana in danger, bringing your coronavirus over state lines, not that you have it, and we probably shouldn't joke about yeah. this, but I'm going to do it anyway because for some yeah. reason right now it feels good to do. And – you put Indiana in danger so you could play tennis and you could have picked up the virus on the Indiana net pole slash net and brought it back sure. to Illinois. Absolutely. I will say I was very, very careful. I try not to touch the gate coming in. And then I do think that the only real way there was only one other, two other people on the tennis court and we weren't, in the directly the court right next to them but i do think you're right when you go and you're picking up your balls and you might have to lean over the net you are touching the net i think that if someone had been playing right there and they're touching the net just like i'm touching the net that would be a problem i did bring hand sanitizer and so i was i did try to wash right before i got on the court i tried to sanitize right after we got off but i'm sweating for sure sweating and maybe wiping something off my face and if i touch the net i think is a pretty small chance but but it's not insignificant, and you're right. I, I could have brought it to Indiana, or I could have brought it from Indiana to Chicago. Wow. So. Wow. I, I don't know if Lori Lightfoot's listening, but if she is, and she wants to hit me up at, at the Carm on Twitter, I will give her your phone number, and this could end Absolutely. up with, with you in, in, in serious trouble. Uh, I was supposed to tell you a story, wasn't I, about my favorite sporting event that I've ever been to? I've been waiting on the edge of my seat. I haven't slept in two weeks. So it's a very tough call, because... I was fortunate, courtesy of WGN, to be in Cleveland for Game 6 and 7 in 2016, which was incredibly sweet. And I was also at the NLCS uh, Game 6 win over the Dodgers, which was awesome too. But I am going with 1992. Game 6, Bulls-Portland, Chicago Stadium, I'm with my brother Dave. We're sitting in section C, aisle three, 
Row H, seat 18 and 19. The Bulls down 15 in the fourth quarter. It's 1992. I am transferring to the University of Iowa, and the Bulls start the fourth quarter with the all-Iowa backcourt, B.J. Armstrong, Bobby Hansen, alongside Scottie Pippen, Stacy King, and I want to say Scott Williams was on the court too. I'm not sure if he was or was not, but the first four definitely were. And they come back from 15 down. They win it at home. My brother wants to leave, and I'm like, there is no chance I'm leaving. They're going to come out from the locker room, and they're going to celebrate with the fans. I'm not leaving until that's for sure not happening. So I just stood there one foot on seat 18, one foot on seat 19 as he stood on the regular ground like you're supposed to, but I was standing on the chair just screaming like an idiot. And then out come the Bulls, and they celebrated with the fans, and it was the greatest moment in my sports life, Ethan Blumenthal. What can you tell me? describe to me the last minute of that game? I, I was, as I mentioned before here, I was born in 1991, so my memory of the 92 92- championship game is a little bit hazy and so could you tell me what was going on in the end of the game there so I can get a little so I can feel like I'm there with you so Jordan had an incredibly sweet right baseline drive under duress finished with the right hand a righty layup Portland was then I think down was it Mark Carmen-esque it was kind of Carmen-esque. I don't know if you saw yeah. my sh- – did you see my shot the other day on Twitter? I did. Yeah, of course, of course. I mean, that was – you know, I thought that was in solid, impressive form right there. People aren't – Absolutely, with the gloves on too, right, with, wasn't it? With the glove. Now, I, yeah. I, and I, But I was – before I shot that thing, I was doing a bunch of drives in the lane and I was feeling myself a little bit on some old-school Carm layups, and I was dusting off my – I was thinking about moves back in that Iowa. God, I love basketball. It's such a great sport. Yeah. Um, but it was a it was a sweet drive right. He also had a floater in the lane. Um, there was Stacy King had some huge shots in the rally, and there was a headline in the Tribune the next day: King for a day, as in his, his rest of his career sucked. But for that moment, he was king for a day. Bobby Hanson, mm-hmm. Bobby Hanson at a corner three. BJ at a right baseline jumper. Scotty was doing his thing. He had a couple of buckets along the way. And then Mike came in around the six-minute mark, and and John Paxson, by the way, dribbled it out and flung the ball in the air. But they they played. The Bulls were standing on the scorer's table. They're playing the Hay song, which they can't play anymore because Gary Glitter was arrested for child pornography or something terrible. I forget if it was that or something. Whatever it was, it was bad. But they, they were playing the Hay song, and it was this. It was just a celebration, man. Like. Bulls fans who had gone through losing to Detroit for three straight years, and then they won it the year prior, but they won it in L.A. And here, it was a tough playoff run that year. They went seven games with the Knicks. That was Xavier McDaniel, where Jordan went toe-to-toe with them in game seven and said, fuck you, X, which I'm sure you've seen that video where it's it's clear as day what, what he's saying. Sure, yeah. And... So that was a tough series. They went six, I want to say, with – well, maybe no, they, they swept Cleveland that year. They went No, no, they went six with Cleveland that year. They swept them in 93, but in 92 they went six. And then uh, Portland was a well-respected team. Drexler, Jordan, all of it. And, uh, you know, there was a back-to-back, so all of it was sweet. So what, what did you do right after you left the stadium, though? Did you, did you go out okay. to the bar? Did you continue the celebration, or what was going on there? So, right, so we went to the parking lot, and my brother, you know, he's not a, he's 20 years older than me. He's not exactly uh, the wildest guy on the planet. And I think all that happened is we went, we probably went home. He lived at 1120 North LaSalle. We probably picked up Dublin's. I probably got a cheeseburger. He probably got the salmon on top of his salad, which he loves. Very good value for for brother Dave. And then we might have sure. st- we might have stopped at a Hagen Das, which used to have a store around there. And and I might have gotten the honey vanilla shake with a little chocolate syrup in there. That was about it. There was no there was no excitement after that. I mean, it's it's not a bad way to to end an evening though. And it sounds like you were shoot, shooting a little shot there with the salmon on the salad, but really that's the delicious thing to do. 
Oh, and it's and they do do a really nice job with it with the yeah. solid dressing over there. So that was that was a win. Uh, all right. So that was that's my answer. Now you forget your you have what do you? I want to I want to tell you I want to tell you a, a really good last last podcast that I was on with you. We talked about sneaking into seats, and I saw you at the U.S. Open. So I wanted to tell you a good a good sneaking into seats story. Oh, good, good. I'm excited. I have. Yeah. All right. So it was actually. I must have told you a little bit about this, or I don't know if we did it before, but I'm going to tell you again anyways, because it was at the U.S. Open. The day that I saw you, in fact, the Cubs were playing the Mets. And so after the game, I was with my family. We walked over to the Mets. It was City Field now. Is that what we're That's talking about it. it now? Yep. Uh, so, so we walk over there, and we get – Obviously, as you know, we get the, the cheapest tickets that we can. You know, we get there late, too, because we were at the U.S. Open all day since, like, you know, you've been at the U.S. Open. You're there from, like, 10 a.m. to 7 p.m. So we finally go to the Mets game, 7.45, whatever. It's the third inning, so we just walk in. We figure we might not even stay the whole game. It's been a really long day of watching sports. So we get there. We're walking around the stadium. It was the first time I've ever been there. So we like to kind of get the we're a big baseball family. So get to get the lay of the land, walk around the stadium a bit. We obviously had our seats. I don't know. I have no idea where they were. So we're just walking along and then we're in right center and we say, Oh, this looks like a good spot. You know, probably the, the person guarding the, 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 the staircase going down that, going down that aisle was, you know, missing in action or whatever. So we were like, Oh, let's just go right here. No one's going to stop us. There's plenty of seats down there. So we walk down there. We're in right center. And so we're sitting there, and we're about four rows up from from the fence. And Pete Alonzo comes up to bat, and I was with my dad, and my dad says, you know, if anyone could hit it out here, deep, deep into right center to the left of the bullpen, if anyone could hit it out here, it'd be Pete Alonzo. You know, he's a big guy. And so what <laughs> happens? Pete Alonzo hits the ball, crushes it, Hits off the facade in the bullpen, so it bounces back onto the field, home run. And then Nick Cassianos, who unfortunately is no longer on the Cubs, picks it up and he throws it, and it's right towards us. And it hits off this person in front of me, it hits off my hand, and my brother Daniel, who you know, grabs it and picks it up off the ground, and we get the ball. The Pete Alonso home run ball. So we're like, okay, that's pretty cool. We know we just got a home run ball. So it gets a little bit better because all these people are coming up to us and they're saying, oh, can we take a picture with the ball? And we did not realize that this was not just any home run ball, but it was Pete Alonso's, I believe, his 42nd home run of the season, which was the new New York Mets record for a season, single-season home run record. So then <laughs> so we get the ball, and so then a group of about 15 guys come walking down, and they're like, hey, you know, very nice, and they like you know they had their hot dogs and their beers, and they're like you guys are are in our seats, and so then we were like oh sure sure so we move move seats, and these were New York City firemen. Oh my god! And they had a bunch of them. They have gone to the game together, and they had obviously left at an inopportune time because had they been there, they would have been sitting in their seats, and they might have gotten Pete Alonso's rookie record or, or Mets record home run ball, but instead. It was it was us. We got the ball, and so then the uh, person comes down, and she's like, "Hey, from the from the Mets," and she's like, "Hey, you know, Pete wants his ball back, and uh, you know, he'll give you a signed ball." And we, you know, we thought about we could try to like do this and that. We were like, you know, that's fine. Like, if he wants his ball, that's fine. So uh, we got a signed ball from Pete Alonso, and we were happy to give it back to him. And then we went about our day. And the firemen, while they were upset at themselves for getting for for leaving and not getting the ball, they were not really mad, but they were joking about it as we kind of sat with them for the rest of the game that we got this ball instead of the New York City firemen. And by the way, is there any kind of group of people kind of more loved in the world than New York City firemen? I mean, after everything that's going on in this world, like, is there any more group of people? But we got the ball and they didn't. And that is why also a cornerstone of Ethan Blumenthal going to Cubs games, going to baseball games in general, that I don't, I, I'm not going to go and spend a half an hour in the line to get this or half an hour to go to the bathroom. I mean, go at the game so I can go and watch the game and maybe get a ball. And so that was, that was my story. I mean, bottom line, and we love our our first responders. They're straight heroes. But absolutely, you snooze, you lose. They left. You were there. Yeah. 
That's the way it is. And sure, you could have given them the Pete Alonzo sign, whatever, but they didn't earn it. And that's even despite the fact that they are way better citizens than than you and me and probably everybody else that's listening to this podcast. That's the way it goes. I I, I don't. I, 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 I'm on your yeah. side here, man. Well, I don't. I mean, there's no other. I mean, even if they they had, you know, if they had been there, but they weren't there regardless because they, you know, they weren't going to be there. They were going to someone else was going to get it. It wasn't going to be them, but. That's what happens, and I I agree wholeheartedly with your sentiment. You snooze, you lose. That's kind of the <laughs> kind of the game of life. So we were right place, right time, and now we add a ball to the collection. Add a ball to the collection, Ethan. Good to be yes, with sir. you, bro. Good to be with you, brother. Always a pleasure. You stay safe and wash those hands, man. <laughs> you do the same, Ethan Blumenthal. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.